I will tell you right up front, this really is not a traditional Father's Day sermon, but dads, if we hear what's said today from God's Word and put it into practice, what a gift it would be to our kids and to our families. I don't know if you heard about the fellow who had three sons. He inherited from his parents $1 billion. Now, with all of this money, he went to each of his sons and he offered to them anything they wanted. He said, I want you to know money is no object. So I'm giving you a chance. What do you want? I'll get it for you. And the first son said that he wanted a Jaguar. He had always wanted a Jaguar. So his father went out and bought him seven Jaguars, each one a different color. He could drive that Jaguar, a different, different car, each day of the week. His second son wanted a motorcycle. And so the father went out and bought him 30 motorcycles, one for each day of the month. His youngest son was only eight years old, and he said that he had always wanted a Mickey Mouse outfit. And so the father went out and bought him the Kansas City Royals. But they are playing pretty good right now. I have to admit that. They beat the Cardinals three out of four. I was up there on that Thursday night. I went up there and I saw the Cardinals lose. Uh, You know, money can buy lots of things. But it cannot buy the things that we really need. It cannot buy the things that matter the most. For instance, money cannot buy eternal life. Money cannot buy love, it cannot buy joy or peace, and having lots of money doesn't guarantee you having a life of fulfillment. And we're going to see that in the text that we're looking at today. If you want to look at your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10, that's where we're going to be. And I have mentioned to you numerous times through the years that Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, he talked about money more than he talked about any other subject except for the kingdom of God, according to one source that I read this last week. That same source said that he talked more about money than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And no doubt he did that because he knew that mankind struggled with money. We struggle about loving money too much. We struggle about holding on to money too tightly instead of giving it away to help others and investing in the kingdom of God. And so as we have gone through this series on the life of Christ over these last number of months, in fact, we have been in this series for a year and a half, we have had some sermons on the subject of money simply because that's what Jesus talked about a lot. So if you have a problem with sermons on money, I would just say to you, take it up with Jesus. Because he talked about it quite a bit. And we're just looking at the scripture. We're seeing what Jesus 
did and what he had to say of the 38 parables that Jesus told, 16 of them dealt with the subject of money. And this, this was a new statistic to me that I was very interested in from this source that I looked at on the Internet. One out of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke have to do with the subject of money. You Think about that. One out of every seven verses out of the Gospel of Luke. That's a lot of time dealing with the subject of money. Apparently, Jesus knew that we needed that kind of teaching and admonishment. You know what I have found through the years? I have found that the ones who have the most problem with sermons on money are those who have a problem with investing their money into the kingdom. Now, most of us don't have a problem investing our money into our own needs and wants, but some do have a problem with investing their money into the kingdom. Let's see what Jesus has to say to a rich man who came to him. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As he was setting out on a journey, a man came up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, a lot of your Bibles will have a heading over this passage of Scripture similar to what mine has, and that is the rich young ruler. This heading tells you a lot about this particular fellow. It tells you that he was rich, it tells you that he was young, and it tells you that he was a ruler. I was looking into the Scripture to substantiate all three of those points. And sure enough, each of them are substantiated in the different Gospels. You do have to look in more than just Mark's account, though. All three Gospels that bear this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he was a man of great means. Luke's account says that he was very rich. Matthew and Mark tell us that he was a man who had great possessions. The fact that he is that he was young is told to us by Matthew chapter 19 verse 12 and the fact that he was a ruler is told to us by Luke chapter 18 verse 18. So he was the rich young ruler. And according to the world's thinking, those are three pretty good marks to have in your favor. He was rich which is better than being poor, according to the world's way of thinking. He was young, which is 
preferable over that of being old, and probably most of us would agree with that. I was sitting at the table this last week with some of our 55-plus people, and somewhere along the line that conversation came up about age, and somebody made the remark, the golden years are not so golden. And as that remark was said, there were lots of heads around the table shaking yes. They were agreeing with him. This fellow in the text was in his prime. He was young. He had energy. And he was a ruler, the scripture says. He had power. He had position. He had people underneath him. He could tell people what to do, but... There was something missing from his life. There was a hole that needed filled, and he was searching to see if he could figure out what that hole was and what could fill it. And that's why he came to Jesus. He had a question for Jesus. The question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we get to the question and the dialogue that Jesus had with this man, first let me say this, that he actually came to Jesus with a sincere question. Most of the time to this point in Jesus' ministry, as we've looked at it over this last year and a half, when people came to Jesus with a question, it seems that most of the time it was not a sincere question. Most of the time it was the Pharisees who came to him with that question. They were trying to trap him with that question. They're testing him, hoping to stump him, or hoping that he'll say something that will turn the crowd against him. This fellow was different, though. He comes to Jesus with a sincere question, and he's very respectful of Jesus. Verse 17 says that he knelt down before Jesus. He humbled himself giving Jesus much honor. Now for the question, good teacher, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The question was asked in such a way that he wanted Jesus to tell him one thing that he needed to do to gain eternal life. And Matthew's account of this story makes that even more clear. Chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 16, says the question in this way. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What donation do I need to make? Just tell me and I'll make it. What sacrifice do I need to offer? What strenuous service do I need to perform? Just tell me the one thing that I'm lacking. Tell me the one thing that I need to do to get eternal life, and I will do it. And Jesus' answer in verse 19 goes as follows. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. He goes on, he lists several commandments that God gave to his people through Moses. He said, if you keep these commandments, then you will live. And the rich young ruler has a pretty high opinion of himself. He says, teacher, I've already done all of these things. From my youthful days, I have kept these commandments. Had he really? I mean, had he perfectly kept the law? Had he always told the truth? No. 
Had he always honored and obeyed his mother and father? No, he, he was good, but he wasn't that good. He wasn't perfect. It's interesting to me as I look at this dialogue, Jesus didn't call him on the carpet for his answer. He didn't say, now listen, you're not as good as you think you are. He just let this guy's answer go. Because he could look into his heart and see what was lacking. He could see what this guy's problem was. So, because he loved him, he told him the truth. He said, one thing you still lack. But don't you know that got his attention? One thing you still lack. Go and sell all that you have. And give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It was like a sword going into the depth of his being. Jesus had nailed him. You ever been to a chiropractor and you've, you've told him that, you know, as you go in, you say, Doc, I've, man, my lower back is just really hurting me. Or, or it's my neck. It just seems like it's out of, out of place. It's just killing me. Would, would you help me? And the chiropractor has you lay on the bench and he starts to examine you and, and he's, he's going up and down your spine and he, with his thumb and he's feeling around on you and, and then just that fast he puts his thumb right there where it hurts and he presses and you about come off of the table and he says, I bet it hurts right there. Oh yeah, that's you got it. That's what Jesus did with this fellow. His words went right to the place that it hurt. He said, you must sell all that you have and give it to the poor. What was the man's response? He was saddened, the scripture says. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He was unwilling to do what Jesus told him to do. There are several things here from the text that I want to call to your attention. First of all, Jesus loved him enough to speak the truth to him. I hope you saw that in verse 21. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you still lack, go and sell all that you possess and give it to the poor. Now, in my mind, there is a definite connection between loving someone and speaking the truth to them. Would you, would you agree with me in that? If you love someone, you're, you're not just going to tell them what they want to hear. Rather, you're going to tell them what they need to hear. And that's the kind of preacher I want to be. You. And that's why 1 Thessalonians 2 4 has been one of my favorite through the years. It says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. If I truly love you, I am going to speak the truth of God. To you, I'm not going to sugarcoat the message to you. I'm not going to soft pedal the word of God to you. If I did, then it wouldn't be the truth that I was speaking to you. 
Now, it is important that I speak the truth to you in love. That I not just hammer you with the truth. If love is not present, then I am like a clanging cymbal or, or a noisy gong, says 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to pray for me about this, that I can be that kind of preacher to you, that I can speak the truth to you in love. That's one of my greatest desires as I stand here in this pulpit. And that's why last week I preached that sermon to you. Remember? Last week's sermon, it was a message on marriage and divorce. It was not an easy message to preach. It would have been much easier to just kind of skip over that text. But you need the truth preached to you, and I need to preach you the truth. That's why I spent some time in that sermon differentiating between the world's definition of marriage versus God's definition of marriage. That's why I spent some time in that sermon talking to the young people about and warning them about living together prior to marriage. I understand a lot of what I said last week is not a popular message for this culture. But you need to know that God's way is better than the world's way. And as we together seek to live for God and honor God with our lives and with our marriages and and with our personal purity. As we do things His way rather than our way, things will be a whole lot better for us. Not just here, but beyond the here and now too. I'd love you enough to speak the truth to you. And I would pray that you, you would pray for all of our staff here that we would have that kind of love for you, that we would speak the truth to you and to speak it in love. And every single one of us need to have that kind of mindset in our personal witness too. It's not just the preacher's job to speak the truth in love. It's every Christian's job to speak the truth in love to our neighbor, to our family members, that we would love them enough to tell them what they need to hear, not just what they want to hear. By the way, did you notice after Jesus gave this rich young ruler the truth, he told him to come and follow him? He said, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. I was listening to a preacher just this last week and he said this, Jesus never said, come, lead me. He always said, come, follow me. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be following Jesus wherever he leads us. Because he will never lead us astray. Let me give to you a second point from this text. Jesus knew exactly what was in this man's heart. One thing you still lack, Jesus said to him. Well, how did he know? How did he know what was in that man's heart? He knows all things. There's not one thing that he doesn't know. I I was interested in seeing the number of scriptures that emphasize this very point, that Jesus knows all things. 
just verses from the New Testament, not to mention the number of verses talking about God knowing us and searching our heart that are in the Old Testament. But what's in the New Testament? John 2.24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. John 16.30, but uh, Jesus' disciples are saying this to him. Now, we can see that you know all things. This makes us believe that you came from God. And then the disciples in Acts chapter 1 are praying this prayer. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Indeed he does. He knows everyone's heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in my heart. And because of that, we need to be trying our very best to keep our heart and our mind pleasing unto him. There is no pulling the wool over his eyes. He knows us better even than we know ourselves. Let me give to you a third point. Jesus demands to be first over everything. The rich young ruler was possessed by his possessions. Money ruled over his heart. Jesus knew that. And that's why he called for this young man to give up his possessions and give to the poor. Jesus is not interested in playing second fiddle to anyone or anything. He must be first over everything. Do you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24? He said, you you love, You you cannot serve two masters. Either you love the one and serve the other, or you hold to the one and you despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Some of your Bibles may say, you cannot serve God and money. Others, the old King James says, you cannot serve God and mammon. The same is true with anything else that you might try to put in front of Jesus. I mean, you fill in the blank. Fishing, hunting, boating, camping, shopping, family, sports and recreation, our job, our stuff, whatever it is that you fill in the blank there, nothing can go in front of Jesus and Him be happy about it. And so what we need to do is, if there is something there that is in front of Jesus, that's taking priority over Jesus, then whatever that is, it needs to be demoted so that Jesus can have his rightful place. Otherwise, he's not going to be happy. He demands to be first over everything. This is what he said to the church at Ephesus. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He demands first place over everything. Here's a fourth point from the text. 
Money and stuff is not enough to satisfy. The rich young ruler had all kinds of money. He had stuff just coming out his ears. He, he was a rich man, but, but still he could sense that there was something missing in his life. He was searching for something more. And then after Jesus told him to go and sell his possessions and give to the poor, he was unwilling to do that. And though he had all of this stuff, he went away sad. He went away grieving. He went away empty. Empty still. His money, his stuff could not console him. I want to read to you a modern day parable. Maybe you'll remember it from God's at War. There was a chapter in here about the God of money. I reviewed that chapter this week, and this is something that I think is worth time looking at. Frank Simmons, this is a parable. Frank Simmons was a man who was committed to doing whatever it took to be successful. He didn't come from a family with much money, but things were going to be different for him. Even when he was in high school, he evaluated his future careers based on what would make him the most money. He considered going into medicine not because he was passionate about helping people, but because he knew the money was good. But he he finally decided on being a stockbroker. He got married his senior year in college and soon started a family. But he was working 14-hour days, often seven days a week. When he was at home, he found he was preoccupied with work and the state of his investments. Then when he started his own company, his occupation became his preoccupation. He became known as one of the best market timers in the business world. He also... Uh, He always seemed to know what was about to take a downturn and what was the next sure thing and what it would be. His wife would ask if they could go out sometime, just the two of them. She tried to remind him how quickly the kids were growing up. There were little league games and, and dance recitals to attend. He would usually say something like, yeah, just just let me get caught up. Next week should work. But he was always catching up, and before long, they stopped asking. They knew where they stood. Frank would occasionally go to church to be seen by some of his clients, but most of the time, his family would go without him. By the time he was 40, Frank described himself as a self-made millionaire. But with the rise of the Internet, Frank realized that he could make some real money providing online investment opportunities. He would check his stocks 20 times a day and watch his fortune grow. One weekend, he flew his wife to Naples to show her the beachfront property he was going to purchase for their dream home. He told her the big news. By this time next year, I'll take the company public. We'll, set for, we'll be set for life. We'll have everything we could ever want. We'll be able to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But we'll have more than enough, he said. She didn't say it out loud, but she thought to herself, for Frank, there will never be enough. A few days later, back at the office, Frank closed on the property. That very night, he was driving his Mercedes home from the office, and he took a corner a little too fast. By the time they found him, he had already been dead for hours. His death was big news in financial circles. He even made 
Section B of the Wall Street Journal where they told his success story. They used words like visionary and trendsetter to describe him. His life was the American dream. But while he was being remembered here on earth as a huge success, Frank was standing in front of his creator trying to give an account for his life. And it turns out that with all of his entrepreneurial accomplishments and his extraordinary portfolio, God was not impressed. He was not impressed with the car he drove. He was not impressed with his vacation home or the company he had built. John Tillotson puts it this way, He who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. Wow. That pretty much says it all, doesn't it? All the money in the world and all the stuff that money can buy will not be enough. Either here or beyond. Only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus satisfies here, and only Jesus will satisfy there. At the end of our journey, when we stand before God, the only thing that will matter is what did we do with Jesus? This section of scripture in this story concludes with the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples after this rich young ruler has departed. The guy goes away. He goes away sad. He hasn't complied with what Jesus has said to him. And so Jesus turns to his disciples to teach them a lesson. He says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom. And that's a warning for each of us, too. Not just for the disciples or the people of Jesus' day. That's a warning for each of us. You know why? Because we are wealthy. And you say, what? (laughs) I'm not wealthy. Yes, you are. How many of you came in your own car this morning to church? How many of you came? How many of you drove your own car? You're wealthy if you drove your own car to church. And I would would guess most of us slept in a very comfortable bed last night. If that's the case for you, you're wealthy. Because most people in the world sleep on the floor. If you had more than one pair of shoes to choose from this morning, or one shirt, or one pair of pants to choose from as to what you're going to wear this morning, then you are wealthy. Because most of the world doesn't have that kind of option. And I would guess most of you today will eat more than one meal. Some of you will go out to eat after church today. You are wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world, all of us here today are wealthy, and Jesus has a warning for us. He says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom. 
He went on to make it even more clear as to how hard it would be. He said it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. What? And and we, we sometimes want to explain that away by saying, well, you know, there was this little gate in the wall that a camel had to get down on its knees and crawl through. No, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He's saying it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom. He's using a point of exaggeration, yes. But he's emphasizing the difficulty that a rich man will have in getting into the kingdom. Because, simply, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Is what Paul said. Many, many people have missed heaven because they loved money more than they loved God. And the disciples, they were just as ready to ask this next question as what you and I would be had we been standing there, and we even want to ask it to him today. Then how can we be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus answered in verse 27, With people it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's not that a rich person can't get to heaven. It's just that it's very, very hard for a rich person to get to heaven. But with God, it can happen. Would you, would you close your eyes right now? Please just bow your head. I want to ask you some questions. And I hope that you'll take these questions very seriously and and maybe judge yourself in the area of finances and your personal commitment to Jesus by how you answer these questions. Number one, which reality? And if if you want to look on the screen, the questions are there, but do it in a meditative way. Which reality would cause the most panic in my heart that God does not exist or that I've been financially wiped out. How about this one? Am I currently looking to some material thing, inwardly hoping that it will bring me some relief, joy, acceptance, or peace of mind? Am I hoping it will give me something it was never designed to give? Or, or am I looking to Jesus for all of that? How about this next question? When I receive, some, receive unexpected extra money, what is my first thought about what will be done with it? You know, is it always, hey, I can do this with this, and I can buy this, or is it, I can help somebody? 
I, I can meet that missionary's need that I've been hearing about. How about this next question? Boy, does this get us. Do I give a bad waitress a bigger percentage than what I give to God? Question number five. Can I honestly say that I'm using the wealth of this life to enhance and shape the next life? What That which God has entrusted to me, am I using it to store up treasures in heaven? Or am I just storing up treasures here on earth that are going to be burned up or taken away or rusted? Here's another question. Have I ever asked this question, how can I serve other people with my money? Who can I help? Is your idea of an investment a lottery ticket? Or is your idea of an investment a gift to the kingdom? How about one one final question? Do I think, like most people, that I will have more if I keep it all? Or have I realized that in giving some away, I have gained infinitely more? My prayer is that we would begin to think like Jesus thinks. Father, we need your mind. We need your son's mind. Help us to view finances and to view stuff the way you do. We thank you that you are the great provider. We recognize that everything that we have comes from you. May we realize how temporary it is and how much we need to use that to further your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name.